MTS Washington. I'm Tommy Keene, Academic Dean and Professor of New Testament here at our seminary. And we have a special episode for you this week with the recent publication of Dr. Sutanto's and Dr. Corey Brock's Neo-Calvinism, a Theological Introduction. We were able to host a discussion between Gray and our own Jennifer Patterson, Director of the Institute of Theology and Public Life here at RTS Washington. There is, of course, no substitute for being there, but for those not able to attend uh, a couple weeks ago, I'd like to invite you to listen in. It's a fascinating discussion, one that is not only theological, but practically relevant and helpful, a a guide, we might say, to uh, the intersection of theology, public life, and the way in which our theology actually affects how we think and move and work in the culture around us. So without further introduction from me, here's Jennifer Patterson and Gray Sutanto. I want to congratulate Gray on this new book, uh, Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction. He has co-authored this with Corey Brock. Um, And I want to start, Gray, by just establishing the who and the when and the what of Neo-Calvinism to set the stage here. So we're talking about a movement that began about 150 years ago in the Netherlands, specifically with Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink kind of leading the way, the first generation. But why the neo? What, what's behind the neo in neo-Calvinism? Right. Thank you so much for that, Jennifer. And we're so wonderful to be here to talk about this wonderful, hopefully wonderful <laughs> book. Um, and uh, you're right. So this neo-Calvinism is a theological tradition that flows out of the works of Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink. And so it's not to be confused with Calvinism, which people oftentimes associate with the so-called five points of Calvinism, of tulip, total depravity, un- unlimited atonement. I mean, sorry, limited atonement and so forth and so on, or even new Calvinism, which is a resurgence in America in the last 30 or 40 years of that Calvinistic soteriology. Neo-Calvinism is a Dutch Reformed theological phenomenon. It's a retrieval of Reform orthodoxy in that Dutch context, but now it's become very much a global phenomenon stemming from these works. And for them, Calvinism refers to something much more broad than just the five points of Calvinism. Uh, To them, Calvinism refers to uh, this cosmic vision of living life before God. If God was sovereign over absolutely everything, if God is omnipresent, it means that we live our lives before Him, which means that our faith, our theology, is not just a theology, it's not just a confession for the church, it's a confession for every area of life, they argue. So that's what Calvinism to them referred to. The Neo um, refers to them trying to say that when, when Calvin adopted or formulated or developed this theological vision in his own day, um, he was doing so for a very different age. And so Kyber and Bobbing asked the question, how can we continue to live faithfully before the presence of God in every area of life in a modern age, in a new world, so to speak, in a world with new ideals that perhaps Calvin never anticipated, new issues, new philosophies that Calvin never anticipated. And so the Neo referred to that attempt to bring that old orthodoxy, bring that paleo-Calvinism into this new modern condition. So at least the Neo referred to two realities. I would say that this is, there's an intensive sense to the Neo, and then there's an extensive sense to the Neo, okay, Um, the updating. Uh, The intensive sense refers to this reality. Everybody knows, for instance, that Kuiper has this wonderful, famous quote, right? Which is that there is not, a square inch where Jesus Christ does not say mine. 
And if you hear anybody only quote that, you can assume that they probably never really read Kuiper because it is one of the most oftenly um, misquoted passages in Kuiper's thought himself. That particular passage in context, actually Kuiper argued, means that if Jesus is Lord, then Christians are not. If Jesus is Lord, then we have to recognize the time of this present redemptive historical order, which is the time of God's patience, the time of God's common grace, the time of God wanting to be patient with unbelievers, not yet the time of God's judgment. And so if that's the case, then um, neo-Calvinism or this reformed theology, understanding where we are in redemptive history, um, provides a foundation for a kind of pilgrim theology. That if you are going to be, for instance, a Christian in, in public theology, a Christian in government, you have to recognize that this is not yet the time of that final judgment. And so why was he formulating it in this way? Well, as he was trying to retrieve this older orthodoxy, the modern world had some, again, newer conditions, new ideals. What were some of those ideals? Well, pluralism, um, recognizing that the church and the state powers perhaps should be separated. Uh, we don't want an established church model the way that Calvin had in Geneva. And third, um, freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, right? Those three realities. And Kyber actually argued, even though the modern age wants these three ideals, it can't provide the foundations for these ideals. Because in the modern age, we have a secularist, naturalist worldview, a world system that actually stifles the freedom of conscience because it doesn't recognize that people are made in the image of God and people therefore as a intrinsic drive and desire for religion. And that religion therefore could not be kept out of our public commitments. And also because secularism has this naturalistic perspective, it would smuggle in this, this naturalism, which in Kuiper's view is itself a faith commitment into the public realm and would slowly become a new kind of uniformity, a new kind of hegemony that Kuiper said that would, would ultimately destroy the sort of pluralism and freedom that modernity wanted. Um, so Kuiper argued, ironically, these very modern ideals could not be resourced by modern foundations and could only be founded by Calvinism. Because of common grace, we can be patient with unbelievers. Because of the image of God, we can recognize and understand why people have deeply, intrinsically held religious commitments and that we might, we might be divided over it because of sin. And we have to be patient with these realities as we await for the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the final judgment. So that's the first intensive sense, right? Modern conditions, modern society, but Calvinistic foundations for those modern ideals that Ironically, again, modern ideals have a better home when the Christian faith is the public common reality, so to speak. Um, the extensive sense, so there's an intensive sense, there's an extensive sense. The extensive sense has to do with the fact that therefore Calvinism or your Reformed theology is a cosmic holistic worldview and it's a truly Catholic or universal sort of vision of life which means that the essence of Christianity will still be maintained from age to age, from place to place, and would have the intrinsic capability, capacity to leaven any culture, any age in a new way. And so in each generation, there'll be new questions, new philosophies that emerge, and yet Christianity would remain the universal faith as it is pliably and also transformatively taking those new conditions and actually saying we are still going to provide the better foundation for it. We're still the perennial truth precisely because God is still sovereign today as much as he was yesterday. 
God is still sovereign now as much as he was in the 17th century. So those are the two senses of the neo, perhaps. That's a long answer to the question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So your title is Neo-Calvinism and the subtitle, A Theological Introduction. Pretty unassuming, could get passed over pretty quickly. But you actually make quite a point in the introduction that this is a theological introduction. Why is that important? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Um, So um, because of this cosmic reality and because of also the public efforts of Kuiper. He was prime minister of the Netherlands in the beginning of the 20th century. And, and of course, uh, the public efforts of Bobbing as well. A lot of the focus in neo-Calvinist scholarship and even in the popular reception of neo-Calvinism had been in those horizontalized dimensions. Um, they focus on, oh, therefore Christians can be engaging with plurality or Christians could be engaging with philosophy, education, universities, whatever else. And so what we actually see in those receptions is the theology which is so foundational, gets subsided entirely. And as the neo-Calvinist trajectories and traditions have focused so much on these horizontalized realities, they have slowly, in some cases, departed from those theological foundations, and what makes it distinctive gets lost entirely. So when we take a look at just even some of the recent introductions, there's some chapters in theology, maybe. We're thinking of Craig Bartholomew's Contours of the Kuyperian Tradition back in 2017, a wonderful text that we all benefited from, but only a few of those chapters are on theology. The Kuiper Center Review published a few of the conference proceedings from the Kuiper conferences held over, let's say, 2012 to 2017, and they focused so much on religious pluralism, on education, university, um, other religions, and philosophy. Again, the dogmatic foundation is um, overlooked. And so as we actually survey the landscape, everybody thinks they know what neo-Calvinism is, but um, people can't articulate the, the core of it, which is this profound and vital theological vision. One more thing to say perhaps about that. I think we can't underestimate how much the translations of Bavink and Kuiper have been so instrumental in this in recent years. When Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics came out, um, people started to read that and people started to say, I thought Bobbing was a neo-Calvinist. This doesn't sound like neo-Calvinism at all. This sounds like good old reform orthodoxy, but for a modern condition. And people therefore started to say, well, I like Bobbing, but I don't like neo-Calvinism. And I wanted to show them, I wanted to show through this book, Corey and I did, that you can't say that, that Bobbing is the definition of what neo-Calvinism is supposed to be. And so if we neglect that core theological vision, we won't see the core of it, and and to the extent that other neo-Calvinists miss that core, then they should come back to it. They should keep drawing from this older orthodoxy. That's very helpful. And because this is a theological introduction, you have organized it naturally according to the the main topics of uh, doctrine. But before you do that, you have an introduction that helps solve the problem that you just mentioned. It's hard for us to put our finger on exactly what neo-Calvinism is. And you do, right. in this introduction, boil out three thematic uh, approaches that go across these doctrinal issues. Can you spell those out for us just so we can walk away tonight with kind of a thumbnail sketch of what neo-Calvinism is? Yeah, thank you so much for that. So I believe the three um, characteristics I brought up in that introduction were first, orthodoxy and modern second, holistic and Catholic, and third, organic and non-mechanical. What do I mean by those things? So the first is um, orthodoxy and modern. This, the idea here is that orthodoxy, the confessionalism that we hold on to here as Reformed theologians, is not a hindrance for engaging with the modern age, but actually a resource. 
that precisely to renew the church, we need to retrieve the past. And that retrieval involves engaging these new modern questions with the resources of the past, right? So we see this in Kuypers and Bobbing's works as they, again, argued, hey, this older orthodoxy can't just be repristinated, but it can be brought out to, to, to the fresh questions of today in a new and fresh way. So Christianity is never just an outdated old religion. It's always perennially true and therefore has implications for modernity. And as modernity has questions, therefore, it's the job of every generation to continually think about how to present that orthodoxy in a new and fresh way for the new generation. Theology is always being done for every generation, after all. The second is that it is holistic. Uh, what do I mean by this? <coughs> it's holistic in the sense of that, that, again, your theology is not just a theology for your private life, but a theology for every area of life. And, and the significance of this is seen especially in the introduction to Bobbing's Christian worldview. If you take a look at Bobbing's Christian worldview, there's some subtle references there and some other not-so-subtle references to the work of Nietzsche. And the reason why Nietzsche is invoked is that he's showing that in this new modern condition, unbelief is seen as a totalizing principle. In other words, the significance of Nietzsche's work is that he's confronting the optimistic, humanistic atheist who says, well, I just don't believe in God anymore, but life is going to go on just normally. Life is not going to change so much for me. I just lack one more belief in God, right? And Nietzsche's argument, if you take a look at his, um, for instance, the Matman parable in The Gay Science, Nietzsche argued that you can't just live your life as if nothing has changed if you don't believe in God. You have to be a consistent, thoroughgoing nihilist. If you're an atheist, nihilism is the logical conclusion. And so your atheism isn't just a private confession that doesn't change your life. It has to change every area of your life. Um, the way you think about the marketplace, the way you think about power, the way you think about humanity, morality, language, whatever else. So Bavink argued, in this new condition, therefore, we can't assume that people would recognize the public dimensions, the public implications of your theology. And so if Nietzsche argued, unbelief led to a totalizing worldview, Bavink and Kuiper continue to argue that Christianity is a whole totalizing worldview that is in competition with this new modernism. If that makes sense. So um, that's why it's holistic. It's not just a confession. Um, Bobbing in one place in the future of Calvinism actually argued that Calvinism is a whole cosmology, it's a whole physiognomy, it's, it's his term, which means, again, a view of every area of life, church relations, philosophy, language, whatever else. Um, the third reality. Uh, third is that it is organic and not mechanical. What do I mean by this? I don't mean that we should all go vegan or something, right? Um, organic here, it means that if creation flows from a triune God, what do we see about the doctrine of God? Well, in the triune God, there's an absolute unity in diversity. One in essence, three in persons. The oneness and the threeness are not in competition with one another, but they coalesce because God is simple and yet exists and subsists in three persons. If that's the case, then creation will mirror the triune God in an analogical, ectypal fashion. It's an imprint of the triune God because God is its maker, right? If that's the case, then when Christians um, consider, because I remember Christianity is a whole all-encompassing life system or worldview, when Christians consider their worldview, they should respect and recognize that reality, that reality is complex, that reality is not reducible to just one part. 
that reality is going to comprise unities and diversities. So consider, for instance, the human person, right? We are body and soul animated by a single personality. Think about cultures. We have many cultures, and yet, without sin, there should be a single confession of the triune God, even while there are different languages, different tribes, different cultures, and so on. And Bavink and Kuiper argued, if you took away this confession in the triune God, you're going to end up making everything mechanical and not organic. Organic means unity and diversity, taking everything, all the complexity together. Mechanical means reducing it all to just one thing, trying to reduce reality to just one thing. So take the person. You're either going to reduce the person to matter in materialism or just to a kind of spiritual being as in animism or pantheism, right? Or take cultures, take away the reality of the triune God, then you're going to be tempted to exalt one culture over the others and apply uniformity over all the other cultures. So Bavink famously in Christian Worldview, the third chapter, argued that racism is the result of leaving the triune confession. Uh, because without this unity and diversity, you're going to end up in uniformity or chaotic multiformity. But unity and diversity means recognizing, again, the complex realities of, of the whole. So in each of these chapters, we try to bring out these three aspects. And I think that's very helpful for us as a seminary and in our Christian lives to observe habits of this theological approach um, that, that we would be um, well served to, to think about how to apply that drawing on the reformed historic confessional truths and applying them to our day, um, thinking about the holistic uh, lordship of Christ in all areas of life, and then thinking about the organic coherence of reality and the unity and diversity. These are habits we want to cultivate at RTS Washington and really think about in, in carrying out our callings in, in our various ways as we're sending students out. You've mentioned the word organic, and that's a really key term for understanding the neo-Calvinist corpus. The, the, uh, the term eclecticism is one you and Corey have often uh, commented about as well. What yes. is theological eclecticism in the neo-Calvinists, and why is it important? Yeah, thank you so much for this. Um, so eclecticism refers to the ways in which theology can eclectically and in a somewhat ad hoc fashion take up the philosophical grammars and cultural forms of particular ages and particular places. So for instance, um, you know, when we talk about patristic and medieval scholars, they talk about how Augustine used Platonic philosophy in his own day, or how Aquinas used and subverted Aristotelian philosophy for his own purposes. And when we take a look at the reformed scholastics, the Orthodox, um, they would, uh, these scholars would oftentimes observe that the reformed Orthodox were continually using these ancient and medieval philosophies for themselves too using Plato, using Aristotle, using the medieval divines and the patristic divines in an eclectic fashion insofar as they're conformed to the scriptural principle, that scripture is our norming norm. And, and Kuiper and Bavink continued to uphold that trajectory. But they, they argued that if you're truly Catholic, if you're truly believing in this universality of the Christian faith, this eclecticism can't just be looking to the past and past philosophies, like Plato and Aristotle. We should continue to use them. But when there are modern philosophies, even like a Nietzsche or an Immanuel Kant, or for our own day, different philosophers that we could probably think of ourselves, because they're made in the image of God, and therefore they're, image, they're made in the image of the triune God that Christians confess, they're still gonna inevitably and unwittingly say truths 
that would find again an organic point of contact with Christianity. And the Christian witness, therefore, is to take up that theological task of showing how these philosophies do end up echoing something about the Christian faith. Um, so if, you know, so when, when Kuiper and Bobbing wrote, wrote their work, um, they were attacked not just by modernists, they were also attacked by conservatives. Um, Kuiper, that's why they call themselves orthodox and modern. Conservative theologians argued Kuiper and Bavink were really modernists because they were using the philosophical grammar of the modern people. And we're actually arguing that we don't want an established church anymore, that pluralism could be grounded in Calvinism. But then the modernists were saying, you guys were actually just fundamentalists. Um, you sound modern, but at the end of the day, you believe that the scriptures is the word of God and you believe in the reformed confessions. Uh, so which one are you? Are you orthodox or modern? And we wanna say it's orthodoxy yet modernity because again, they, they argued, if the Christian faith is true, metaphysically true, and everybody's made in the image of God, and because of the doctrine of general revelation, everybody implicitly knows God in their hearts, then these philosophies are attacking the Christian faith and yet echoing the Christian faith at the same time. They always know better than what they profess to know. So that's where the eclecticism is theologically motivated. Okay. Yeah. So we've been talking about method, the neo-Calvinist method. Let's shift to doctrine, take up one or two doctrinal points, and then we'll close by looking forward sure. um, at, uh, at the, that the future of neo-Calvinist neo scholarship. But, but let me ask you a, a couple of doctrinal questions here, yeah. the kind of the core of the book. Um, you comment, as others have commented, that uh, perhaps the key neo-Calvinist doctrinal insight is that grace restores nature. And you add to that, to the discussion of that, the uh, conversation about the Emmanuel principle, the yes. idea of God dwelling with humanity as the goal of creation and redemption. Yes. And bringing that into the conversation of grace restores nature, I thought was really helpful um, because not only does it kind of give us a little more concrete idea idea of what that grace restoring nature phrase means, but it also helps map it on to perhaps more familiar reformed categories, uh, redemptive historical and covenantal categories and so on. So could you just kind of yeah. walk us through what you're doing there and talking and reflecting about uh, grace restoring nature and the Emmanuel principle? Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, the Emmanuel principle in conjunction with grace restores nature refer to this fundamental fact, and Dr. Richard Gaffin is here, so I have to allude to him when I say this dictum, that eschatology precedes soteriology. Eschatology precedes soteriology. In other words, when God created humanity in the garden, there was a consummate end, eschatology, last things that was, that was offered to them, were they to remain obedient to God. So Adam was created good, but not yet consummate or perfected. So when that initial humanity was created, there was this offer of eternal immutable life that was before them, signified by the tree of life. So if Adam was supposed to move from innocence to perfection, when the fall happened, God wanted us to be restored to that original trajectory. Brian Madsen has a wonderful book on Bavink and the image of God, and he called this book Restored to Our Destiny. So that's what we mean by grace restoring nature, that when the grace of God comes in the person of Jesus Christ through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, it's not against nature or culture as such, but it's meant to point and direct us, redirect us to God himself. That the ultimate goal is still fellowship with the living God through Jesus Christ. So this is a really important principle. And when you read Kuiper and Bavink, they were really focused on this principle that 
Adam was promised eternal fellowship with God, and that eternal fellowship is now restored by way of the gospel and the post-fall reality. So when, when neo-Calvinism is oftentimes associated with transformationalism, this idea that we should transform society, transform cultures, um, some, again, other uh, people who, who might have drawn from this tradition have eclipsed that reality that the transformation of culture, or I would rather call it chastened transformational witness of culture, it's not to the transformation of those cultural forms and institutions as such for the sake of them as their own end, but rather is to subordinate them to that fellowship with God, right? So um, they were never, they never meant to subordinate fellowship with God toward these mere natural ends. They, were, they never meant to uh, create a dichotomy between cultural transformation on the one hand and the beatific vision or eternal fellowship with God on the other. That's what I wanted to say. So um, the neo-Calvinists made a wonderful distinction between structure and direction. Um, cultures are going to continue to organically and naturally create their own structures. So we have lots of human structures, human families, human societies, human institutions like schooling, education, marketplace, um, and so on. And these are natural institutions, natural structures. They're going to emerge. God is not against those things. Grace is not against these natural structures. But grace is against sin, and sin misdirects these structures to be against God. And when the neo-Calvinists argued that we've got to have a transform transformative vision, they actually argued that we need to be individuals in these structures of society with an animating principle that is once again for God rather than against Him. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's a very religious vision, not a secularizing eschaton whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what we're trying to say there. Great. Yeah. Um, let's just briefly touch on revelation and specifically general revelation. Um, yeah. You've thought a lot about theological epistemology, your book, God and Knowledge. And um, I think you've got some really important insights about general revelation in particular. So could you just share a couple of those with us? <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Thank you. So I think when you take a look at Romans 1 and you read Herman and Abraham, Herman Boving and Abraham Kuyper and also other neo-Calvinists in the later generations like Johann Herman Boving, Herman Boving's nephew, when they read Romans 1, they were very emphatic that the world doesn't just potentially makes God known or that makes God knowable, but God actually causes everyone to know him in some way. So um, in the older tradition, we oftentimes talk about, therefore, the acquired knowledge of God or the implanted knowledge of God in terms of propositions, that, that there are propositions available in nature about God that we might actually find out about and actually therefore infer that there is a God that exists. But Kuyper and Boving, drawing from a lot of romantic philosophy, and this is the way in which their orthodoxy is modern, they argued that what if the knowledge of God that is available in nature, this idea of natural revelation, right, is actually found first and foremost in affection, first and foremost in the psyche, in the soul, first and foremost in a pre-theoretical knowledge of God. Boving actually called this sort of knowledge a knowledge that is prior to concepts, a knowledge that is prior to concepts, and therefore causes us to have a heart that wrestles with this knowledge of God deep inside. And we want to suppress the truth because this knowledge leaves us vulnerable before God, if that makes sense. So with this sort of perspective, when you think about, again, engagements with modern philosophies, people are always wrestling with that intuition that feeling that there is a God and that they're guilty before God. And so in the philosophies that they're, uh, they're, they're providing that is 
perhaps initially against Christianity, you're still going to be able to see points of contact because they're forming these philosophies precisely in response to what they know deep inside, if that makes sense. So it's a more holistic sense of the natural knowledge of God, more embodied and also more attentive to the psychological dimensions of the self. It's not just about inferring wrong propositions about God or about learning about God by way of epistemology, but it's about the heart, that, that people know God deep in their hearts and um, oftentimes reveal that knowledge, not by necessarily what they say, but how they live and what they don't say. So perhaps we'll, we'll start there. Um, how, how would you describe the influence of neo-Calvinist theology? Wonderful, thank you. I think it's a secret influence in a lot of the theological movements we find in the Reformed tradition today. So think about, for instance, the redemptive historical sort of hermeneutic that we have of creation, fall, redemption, consummation that we see the Bible through. Well, that's definitely, much, definitely very much rooted in the neo-Calvinist instinct of grace-restoring nature, that eschatology precedes soteriology. Uh, we read the Bible in such a way where we're attentive to that narrative of the scriptures itself. I think secondly, we think about uh, the ways in which we talk about worldview, right? Oftentimes in a uncontextualized way, we leave what Kuiper meant by it, but the worldview is really something that is um, all around us. It's ubiquitous, this sort of talk. And I think we do well to draw from these primary sources that first started to think about what it means to have a Christian worldview. I think thirdly, in terms of contextualization, it's incredibly important and missions. So think about the work of Harvey Kahn at Westminster Theological Seminary um, and Michael Goheen as well now at Covenant Seminary. They're drawing from this tradition. They're trying to say, when we contextualize, we've got to make sure that we're attentive to the philosophies and cultural forms of every single context. So that when I'm in Indonesia, for instance, I better be reading the Quran and I better be reading some Confucius, and I better understand the history of Chinese-Indonesian and native-Indonesian relations. Why? Because those are the issues of that day. I'm not going to be reading uh, Western scholarship necessarily in that particular context, but I'm, I'm teaching at RTS. Um, I'm going to be assigning and reading different texts, right? And so when we talk about Christianity meeting and engaging with culture, there's no such thing as culture with a capital C. There's particular cultures and particular points of context. So we got to show in an incisive way how Christianity engages in each culture and each language and each system, if that makes sense. Uh, finally, I think apologetically, um, we see the influence of neo-Calvinism. If your view of apologetics is that um, the task of apologetics is to expose the unbeliever that they already know God, rather than to prove to them that there might be some God, then you've probably been influenced by the neo-Calvinist tradition. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let me ask you two closing questions. Um, the first is, now that you've had this opportunity to just uh, reflect and, and do a very helpful synthesis for us of what neo-Calvinist theology is all about, what would you see are on the, what, what would you say is at the top of the agenda for neo-Calvinist research going forward? Yeah, wonderful. I think um, first, to recognize and to invite other neo-Calvinists who have been focusing on the horizontalizing aspects, as I mentioned, of the tradition to come back to the older Reform Orthodox and to also show, therefore, that Neo-Calvinism continues to draw from this older Reform theology, that there is no need to bifurcate between Neo-Calvinism on the one hand and Reform Orthodoxy or Reform Scholasticism on the other. Um, the second, I think, therefore, is to show and to explain why the trajectories of Neo-Calvinism have become what they are, why people have focused on these different aspects. 
of life. Um, in other words, trace the trajectories and tributaries and the flows of the river of neo-Calvinism through the second, third generation, all the way to the global reality of neo-Calvinism that we have in today. And third, I, I, I still think that the translations of Kuiper and Boving have not really been tapped into. We have seen quite a lot of it, and in this book, we try to survey quite a lot of texts, but there's lots of other texts that we haven't really um, grasped altogether very well. And it's one thing to have academic monographs that touch on these texts. It's another to translate those academic monographs into the common imagination of the people in the pew, right? So I think that's really important as well. And we try to do uh, a lot more of that in our future work as well. Good. Yeah. And one thing we haven't said explicitly is that your book focuses on Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink and their works. And That's right. Uh, deduces from, or uh, distills from them the key, the key themes and doctrines. A final question then for you. What should we be looking for in the next year or two in terms of publications, new translations, yes. new works, et cetera, in neo-Calvinism? Thanks so much, Jen. Um, so, Lots of things are coming out. I'm very excited about it. In the most immediate future, James Eglinton has translated Johann Hermann Bobbing's Personality and Worldview, which would be again, another seminal text on Christian worldview, which would nuance, again, how we use the term Christian worldview. Oftentimes, Christian worldview has been weaponized. Like, I have a Christian worldview, you don't. Ha, I win, right? And I could therefore account for reality, and you can't. But, but Johann Bobbing is a much more nuanced grasp of what it means to have a worldview. And he actually argues not very many people have a worldview. We might have a little world vision, but to have a worldview is an objective and cosmic perspective that we're all just inductively working toward rather than starting with. So I think it's gonna be a wonderful text coming out with Crossway as well. Um, I, James, and Corey have translated Boving's Christianity and Science, which he wrote in the same year as Christian Worldview that we translated back in 2019. If Christian Worldview gives that cosmic perspective, Christianity and science shows the impetus for a Christian university. So he says, what's a Christian perspective on the natural sciences, on the humanities, on history, on philosophy? Um, he tackles each of these sort of topics discreetly. And it was sort of his, almost like a manifesto for the emergence of the Free University of Amsterdam. So if you, it's, it's much more accessible, I would argue, with Christian worldview. People have picked up the Christian worldview and said, it's such an attractive orange little volume. <laughs> and then they start reading it and they give up after 20 pages. Um, but I would say, please keep coming back to it and be patient with it. But Christianity and science is, I would argue, immediately accessible because he was trying to proliferate it to the practitioner, right? So I think that's very exciting. Um, third immediate thing on the horizon is a forthcoming TNT Clark handbook to Neo-Calvinism, which I have edited with Corey Brock as well. And that has um, four sections, uh, key theological sources, um, key figures of neo-Calvinism, um, and also uh, the, the historical conversations of neo-Calvinism, that's the third. And the fourthly, the influences of neo-Calvinism in each of these different fields. So that's coming out. We're just waiting for the last couple of chapters right now. Um, if you're watching this, you know who you are. Um, and uh, Lord willing, that would come out by 2024. Wonderful. Well, yeah. we look forward to featuring many of those at future events like this. So please stay tuned. Um, and if you're interested, of course, sign up on those uh, sign-up sheets at the back to be apprised of this. You'll also see it in our regular advertising when we have these events.